Welcome to the Paranormal News Insider for the week of February 22nd, 2022, and episode number 505. And this is your host, Dr. Brian D. Parsons, and we are live on the Paranormal King radio network at ParanormalKing.com. Yeah, I could have uh, could have waited a while, could have taken a few years off and had uh, episode 222 tonight, I suppose, but... Didn't work out that way. Yes, tonight it's Tuesday, or as uh, I've been saying all day, it's Tuesday. Yes, it's two two twenty twenty two, not two two twenty two, as some people say. Uh, as uh, Benjamin Radford pointed out on social media, uh, that date was actually two thousand years ago. So you're a little late, uh, of course. It's not going to be as cool as what it will be in 200 years. I'd like to be uh, cryogenically preserved pretty soon so I can wake up and live in the year 2222. Or will they say 2222? I don't know. That's, that's going to be a cool year. Probably won't be around even with good vitamins and uh, Jeff Bezos or whoever is trying to make people live extended lives probably not going to make it to there but enjoy it 2 2 2022 not quite all twos uh, but a lot of people making a big deal about it anyway not very paranormal i don't think but neat nonetheless a lot of people talking about it today uh got some interesting news in the news a lot of uh stories that were kind of on the cusp i got excited there was a story uh, about that uh, last year, almost uh, almost a year uh, a year to today. It was a year as of yesterday. Uh, there was a story about that American Airlines flight where the uh, the pilot reported seeing a long cylindrical object fly over the plane, and I thought uh, there was an update. You know, they're talking about being an update. So I read the story. And uh, nothing, no update. They just talked about how the FAA knew about it, the FBI knew about it, uh, was admitted, and that was it. So I was like, great. I started researching the story and get all excited, and nothing. So no news, no update, which was kind of depressing. I, it, so that kind of tells you where we're at. With the paranormal news right now, God, there's a lot of uh, weird stuff about uh, Bigfoot tracks and different things, and um, yeah, maybe we'll talk about that one if we get time. But uh, yeah, it's people think that when you see footprints in the snow, that uh, it's easier to spot footprints because it's in the snow. However, uh, snow is probably the hardest of all mediums to figure out exactly what you're looking at, unless it happens right then, you know, that same day or within a day or two of the snow actually falling because uh, snow uh, will melt 
uh, ground. The ground can change due to the uh, extra water, uh, moisture, ice. There's just so much going on. Wind, it's just too many variables, and you really can't tell what you're looking at. But there's a story, I think it was out of Illinois. I'll mention it. We'll talk about it, I guess. It was out of Illinois, and there's these footprints in the snow, and they they just don't look right. They look like footprints, and then there's these strange toes. And I did, hadn't read it, but I was looking at it, thinking to myself, that looks like somebody just like added it later on. And sure enough, a lot of other people commented the same thing. And uh, yeah, it could be because of the the print melted. And it could have been on top of the snow, and then the print melted all the way to the grass. But uh, I, I don't think that's the case. I think that's just somebody playing around. But... Even if it's not, you can't tell. Uh, there's no way to really look anything up unless you have uh, earlier photographs of those prints. But anyway, um, we're going to talk. I just saw it pop up in the uh, the chat room. Loch Ness. Why not? Let's talk Loch Ness. Um, talk about the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, not so much the Loch Ness Monster, but... People looking for the Loch Ness Monster. How's that? Uh, we've talked about uh, pretty much every time there's a story about the Loch Ness Monster. We talk about how much money is generated for the local area. How much money uh, even for the country of Scotland that's generated. And it's estimated that about 41 million pounds sterling or $50 million in U.S. dollars is uh, generated by the purported creature that to the entire uh, Scottish economy every year. It's not a whole lot of money, but to us, you know, 50 million. Uh, I think uh, Justin Bieber probably made more money on his record-setting single. He just had uh, Ghost, I think it was called. I uh, probably made more money in, in a week on that than uh, 50 million, but. It's still a, a fairly decent dent, a pretty good amount of money. And even that estimate, I believe that estimate's about 10 years old at this point. It keeps uh, making its way throughout a lot of stories about the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, we've also talked about uh, a few of the tour boat agencies that service Loch Ness uh, over the, the last few years. A little bit of competition between some of them uh, last year. And one of those services is called Cruise Loch Ness. Uh, this tour boat company has been owned by the same family for 54 years. And recently it was announced that it's now up for sale. What a really unique business opportunity. Uh, their flagship boat, the Spirit of Loch Ness, uh, as I mentioned uh, was in the news. Uh, this particular boat was in the news uh, back in the fall. Actually, it was two years ago. Fall of 2020. It's really late in the year. I think it was like late October, early November. Um, they had an interesting sonar find, and that was right on the heels of another cruise ship company purportedly having a uh, an impressive sonar find. The uh, the ship, the Spirit of Loch Ness, actually holds 210 passengers. 
And uh, their other ship, their next biggest ship, is the Legend of Loch Ness, and that holds 108 passengers. Now, I know the uh, Spirit of Loch Ness, they actually uh, really push the sonar thing. So they actually, I think they have 14 screens on that ship that you can watch the sonar. So that's why people are uh, finding these strange sonar things popping up, which are generally just little schools of fish reflecting. Uh, but they don't know that. They get all excited. And um, they have uh, two other boats. Thing they, they have uh, two what they call uh, rigid inflatable boats. And these uh, rigid inflatable boats propel passengers uh, very quickly through the cold waters of the lock. Uh, it's kind of like the adventure thing. Uh, they'll go from their home base to Urquhart Castle in like 10 minutes, like 15 miles away. Uh, zipping through the water. Well, maybe not that fast, but uh, pretty fast uh, to help search for the Loch Ness Monster is, well, I guess also to sightsee, I suppose. Uh, the business has won multiple awards, including being named the national winner of the 2019 Best Visitor Attraction in Scotland in the Scottish Thistle Awards. And the company was started on May 28, 1968 as Loch Ness Cruises, Owned by Norman Hugh McKenzie. Uh, it started with a 12-passenger Liverpool-class lifeboat. And on uh, November 4th, 1971, Norman McKenzie was born four miles from the shore of Loch Ness. Ron McKenzie uh, then took over the ownership in 1990. And he changed the name of the company to Cruise Loch Ness uh, since there were three other operators using that same name of uh, Loch Ness Cruises, which I think there's still at least one left. In the year 2000, Ron McKenzie became 100% owner in the company. And uh, in 2015, the company became the, lar- the longest-running family-owned cruise company in Loch Ness. So you, you may wonder, well, why sell now? You know, did they lose a lot of money in the pandemic? Uh, sure, sure they did, but uh, they're not open all year round anyway. And they do, uh, they do a lot of sailings in the summertime. And even with a diminished uh, crowd, you know, people still want to get out. It's not like people uh, have to come from all over the world to go there, which they do. But they generate enough traffic from people in Scotland uh, as well as around the UK enough to uh, to keep them going, I'm sure. But that's not why they're selling it. Ron and Debbie McKenzie are 50 years old and 45 years old, respectively. And while they have three children, it seems very unlikely that uh, any of those three children will take the reins to the company. Now, Ron told the Press and Journal, said, quote, this has always been a family business, but my older son has gone on to pursue a different career path, and my younger children are just six and eight. I will be way too old by the time they could realistically step into running the business. Now is the perfect time to sell. We have put our heart and soul into the growth of the business, and we are extremely proud of what we have achieved. What better time to pass the reins to a lucky new owner who can take it 
to new heights. Unquote. Uh, so, uh, probably not a, a money move, but uh, they're looking to take some, spend some time. They're going to move out to, uh, I believe, the east coast of Scotland to be near some uh, family, extended family, and just, uh, you know, live on that money. They also talked about potentially uh, starting up another business of some sort, but it's got to be pretty pretty intensive to uh, to operate that you know cruising Loch Ness uh, for pretty much probably the whole entire day I'm sure they're not out there all the time they have people that are piloting these boats and they're just kind of in charge of it but it's it's got to be a lot to operate a business like that but it's also got to be very difficult to know that uh, you're selling that family business after all that time and uh, that's got to be tough but uh, it's, it's probably a pretty smart business move uh, after 50 some, 54 years to pull that plug. But to know that you're, you're not going to keep it in the family forever. And uh, why not sell it when you're able to enjoy money and time and uh, just kind of walk away and uh, let somebody else continue that search for the Loch Ness Monster. But who knows? Uh, haven't heard any word on anybody uh, buying it or making a bid or anything like that, but uh, I'm sure that won't stay that way that long. With the amount of money um, and the, these boats that they have, they have, I believe those are at least the largest. I don't think their second one is the second largest ship out on the lock, but it's become a pretty uh, competitive business out there. Uh, but uh, people still looking. They're still buying tickets. And uh, we'll see if that continues on. Kind of sad in one way. But uh, good luck to them. And we'll see what happens. Uh, the Loch Ness Monster will never go away. It's always going to be there. One way or another. Speaking of never going away. It seems like some animals who go extinct... Always seem to uh, come back from the dead, at least in the minds and the hearts of those people that uh, still believe in these creatures. And one, one is a creature that uh, I really ho hold uh, high hopes that one day will come trotting out of the woods and uh, be uh, filmed by all and seen by the public and accepted as real, but uh, probably not going to happen. And that, of course, is uh, Australia's own Tasmanian tiger, or also known as the thylacine. And uh, new video has emerged from Australia in what is claimed to be possible footage of an extinct Tasmanian tiger. Uh, it's a 44-second video that was shot in Melbourne, Australia, and was posted to TikTok. Well, why not? Why not anything else? Um, now, the person is uh, filming. It looks like they're driving down the road and somebody's filming from the back seat. you got to remember their steering wheels are on the wrong side of the car. You should say they're actually on the right side of the car. And a uh, person filming from the back seat, we could see what looks like a strange-looking creature walking on the side of the road, on the driver's side, so the right side of the vehicle. 
and is near a sidewalk. And the car slowly passes the creature, which then trots toward the sidewalk and then disappears behind a parked car. As the uh, person filming kind of swings the camera back as the car continues to move down the street. Uh, kind of cuts away, and we see a passenger of the vehicle who has gotten out. And there's a couple of people chasing after the animal on foot. And the uh, little animal uh, gallops away as it's being chased. Tries to duck its way into some woods and then kind of doubles back. And it looks like it's trying to run across the road again. And they give up. Sounds like they're kind of out of shape and they just don't feel like running after this thing. And the person filming uh, says out loud that they think it's the Tasmanian tiger. But when you watch the video, there's some uh, words overlaid on the video and it uh, ponders the question, is it maybe possibly potentially a sick fox? And, uh, we do have a still footage, uh, still from that video, of oh, this little four-legged creature running away for running for its life. I mean, come on, let's be real. People are chasing this poor thing. Um, let me find that. Oh, there he is. Yeah, that little uh, little creature. People are running after. Of course, it's going to run for its life. So there's a picture of it. It's got kind of a low-slung head. Uh, looks like a pretty long tail. And it's uh, pretty much looks like it's kind of devoid of hair. And some people say that if you zoom in, you can see at least two distinct stripes, which the uh, thylacine was known for having those stripes. There's a, a few other animals in Australia that had those distinctive stripes. Not many left at this point anymore. But um, that would be a... Definite plus if it did have those stripes, but we're not really seeing a very distinct stripes on that. And so it's, you know, it's in question. And of course, speaking of distinct, anytime you have a paranormal video, uh, whether it's uh, some sort of cryptid, uh, even if it's footprints of a cryptid, uh, you have a UFO, you have a ghost, you have anything to do with the paranormal. There's always two sides, always two distinct sides. Uh, one, uh, in the case of this video, one side feels that this could definitely be the thylacine. It has to be. Yeah, it's 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 got to be. And, of course, on the other side of the coin... Many feel confident this is just a stray fox uh, kind of meandering down the street, and it's got a mange. So it has a, uh, a disease where it's uh, losing its hair, it's falling out. And if you watch the video, uh, there's a lot of good telltale signs. They did a good job of filming it. Uh, at least it's not blurry. They're not uh, swinging the, the – uh, more than likely a phone, obviously, but they're not swinging it all over the place. You, you do get a, a couple of really good examples of seeing how the animal moves, which to me is a, uh, a pretty clear giveaway of what this creature is. And we can also clearly see the shape of its head, its uh, shape of its body. Uh, we do see a, a couple of profile shots of it as well 
as a, a rear view of it running. So we can see the feet. We can see how it's uh, moving down the sidewalk. And we can see the basic coloring of the animal. Now, the streetlights look a little weird in this. And, uh, yeah, well, definitely, if this thing was, if this video actually happened in the United States, this would not have been a thylacine at all. I guess it would have been a chupacabra. Definitely would have been uh, headlined as a chupacabra. So the fact that it happened in Australia, we'll get a different headline. I don't think there's chupacabra reports in Australia. They haven't made it there yet. Maybe they will. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm quite confident what we're looking at here is, in fact, a fox with mange. And if it had that bushy telltale sign of a uh, tail, there would be no question. Uh, people would uh, definitely identify it as a fox. But when you see an animal that you you recognize that they look a little different, uh, it kind of makes you question what you're looking at. And, and sometimes when you see uh, animals, fox or uh, coyotes with mange, of course, we jump to that conclusion. My goodness, that's a chupacabra. Even if it's not. Uh, because we have a hard time verifying what it is. Even uh, raccoons that have been seen that have been devoid of hair are confused with uh, strange creatures such as a chupacabra. So, uh, you know, they did raise the question, but again, in the video, they did have that uh, kind of a second guess that, you know, maybe, maybe it's not a thylacine. Maybe it is a fox with mange. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's what we have. And some people wonder, well, are, are there fox in Australia? You know, what about the uh, thylacine? What about the uh, Tasmanian tiger? So, yes, fox were introduced to Australia in the early 1800s uh, in various parts of the country over various years. And, of course, they were introduced for nothing less than to hunt. So they were there for sport. And fox, uh, the fox quickly spread. They were became an apex predator. They had really nothing else to uh, drive them away. They were eating uh, other food sources, um, mice and rats or whatever else. Uh, but not only were fox introduced, but rabbits were also introduced. And those rabbits quickly became the main prey for the fox in Australia. And as the rabbits, of course, we all know how quickly rabbits breed. Um, there's a few sayings about that, I think. Uh, so as these rabbits have bred and spread throughout Australia, uh, the fox have uh, closely followed behind. And uh, they're everywhere. Uh, I think it says, uh, I read about 75% at least throughout that country where uh, the fox have uh, have entrenched. And Australia is a pretty tough landscape. It's uh, There's deserts, very hot, dry climates. Uh, so for this, uh, and heavy foresty areas as well. So this, uh, for the fox to, uh, you know, make its way for that amount of area, it's, it's pretty impressive for this creature. And, you know, for, for myself, I've got plenty of fox that live around me. Uh, I've filmed these before. I've seen them 
uh, trotting around in daylight. So I'm pretty familiar with seeing these things. And what I'm seeing in that video uh, looks to me an awful lot like the, the fox that I see running around here. And, of course, we do have some video of thylacine, of course, the last living thylacines that uh, did die off in the Hobart Zoo in Tasmania in the early 1900s. Um, and they moved a little bit differently. I don't know how to describe that, but, you know, Australian animals have a, a kind of a different gait. They have a different walk, different trots as well. Um, yeah, we're not seeing that in this video. And the other important point here that I didn't see raised on a, a couple of pages that talked about this is the, the fact that the uh, Tasmanian tiger is named the Tasmanian tiger because it was plentiful in Tasmania. However, uh, there were no signs of this creature all the way back when settlers arrived on the continent. They did not find this creature there at all. Um, but they were plentiful down in Tasmania, which is separated by a pretty decent expanse of water. So these creatures were not going to, they're not going to swim to Australia. So they weren't really seen. Or we probably would have called them the Australian tiger, which doesn't quite have that magical ring to it. But uh, yeah, probably not in this video. Uh, but it's actually kind of cool that we're seeing um, something like this that's not coming from the Dilacine Awareness Group. Of course, I haven't seen them chime in on this yet, but I'm sure they will. Uh, it'll be all over Facebook, probably a little bit behind, probably pretty jealous that they didn't break that story, uh, that it hit TikTok first. And I, I just kind of wonder if they're as dismissive or... Are they on board that uh, this is definitively a thylacine? So we'll have to keep track of that. Look, see what's going on with those guys. And we go from Australia to, uh, well, we'll go, uh, what, north, northeast, a uh, long ways. And we'll head to Hawaii for the biggest UFO story of the last week. If you haven't heard. Uh, Valentine's Day. Which uh, the story didn't break. Until a few days later. Which is kind of odd. Uh, did break out in Hawaii. And took a little bit of time to spread. To the mainland. Uh, Valentine's Day. A large white object. Was observed in the skies. Over Kauai. Which is. I believe that's the northern. Most island. Big islands. It's at least the, the largest northern island. Uh, so this large white object observed in the skies uh, ended up prompting the military to take a closer look. Uh, they did launch a, a couple of jets. And the jets were close enough. They were able to discover the object was an unmanned balloon with no observable markings. Uh, the military did launch... Uh, a few F-22s to take a look at the object close up. And some residents who had spotted this, uh, there was a lot of people watching this large white object in the sky. Some people said 
it seemed like it wasn't moving. Uh, that it was kind of stationary over a certain part of the uh, the area, and uh, some other people claimed that they well they did see the jets. You can see there's video of the jets. Uh, you can see uh, the uh, the trails in the sky of the jets flying around this object. Uh, some people say they they heard and saw it get shot down, but. Uh, the military officials state otherwise. They say that they did not fire on the object and they are still monitoring it. Although some people did claim to hear loud booms where they thought that the, uh, the military jets did take out the object. Uh, but, you know, it, the headline makes it sound scary, you know, that we have to uh, try to intercept this object and we're wondering what this thing is. And, uh, you know, is this uh, is this normal? Well, actually, yes, it's normal. It's actually standard operating procedure in this particular area. Because again, we're talking about Hawaii. We're talking about being out in the Pacific, and the uh, let's see, Major General Kenneth Hera, uh, adjutant. General for the state of Hawaii. He tweeted out on February 16th. So a couple of days later, he tweeted out, quote, in regards to aerial activity over Kauai on 214, U.S. Indo-Pacific Command detected a high altitude object floating in the air in the vicinity of the Hawaiian Islands. In accordance with Homeland Defense Procedures, Pacific Air Forces launched tactical aircraft to intercept and identify the object visually confirming an unmanned balloon with, without observable identification markings. As part of our normal daily operations, we closely track all vessels and aircraft in the Indo-Pacific area of operations through a combination of joint capabilities to protect the U.S. homeland, support our allies and partners, and secure a free and open Indo-Pacific Unquote. So, uh, yeah, basically saying, yeah, we saw something. We launched some jets to check it out. And uh, we do that normally to um, make sure everybody's safe. You know, make sure that nothing's going through there. Uh, if it was a rocket or something else, um, you know, people were a little bit of panicky over seeing this large object. And again, a lot of people were wondering if the jets shot the object down. But uh, the real question here is what the object is and who put it there. Now, I haven't heard anybody really comment or say uh, what this object might have been. But uh, my opinion, if that matters, but uh, it seems to me it's probably just a, a weather balloon, although generally... You're going to have some sort of markings, uh, some identifiable traits to this being a weather balloon. And I'm sure that they're uh, pretty familiar with spotting weather balloons in the sky, uh, even from the ground, let alone uh, flying in jets. But uh, at least we're seeing the military doing its job and uh, patrolling the skies, making sure we're safe. But uh, of course, you know, the UFO people feel that uh, this is an evasion or this is a UFO or shape-shifting something or other, I've read. Uh, but uh, 
the weird thing is, is where did this object go? And uh, if they're monitoring it, where is it at? But uh, it's probably uh, probably hit some some air and uh, is blown out of the area at this point. And of course, objects sometimes uh, an object like that might stall out when it gets near an island. Uh, you have uh, it depends on the altitude as well because you'll have air moving uh, in off the ocean or out from the land to the ocean, and this could create uh, pockets of air at higher elevations that would uh, kind of freeze that balloon from moving. But as, as you change elevation, change temperature uh, pretty drastically, and also you can have air currents that are much, much faster than on ground, which uh, causes things like that to look like they're moving pretty fast. Uh, but uh, it's also possible it kind of got stalled out as well. So a big mystery that... Uh, we may never know the answer to, but uh, we'll see. We'll see if we get any more information. Granted, it's been uh, just over a week now. We've not heard anything else, but uh, you don't think it's that big of a mystery. Just the military doing military things. And we actually have a ghost story this week that uh, kind of ties in. We had a story last week that we talked about a, uh, a new book on hairy hominids. And this week, we'll talk about another new book that's in the news, and it's on the topic of ghost investigation. Now, in when you're talking about ghost books, uh, ghost investigation, I, I guess there's, I don't know, I, I guess I could say that there's probably two types of ghost books that uh, are, are pretty popular. Uh, one is what I call the regional ghost book or, um, yeah, yeah, regional ghosts. It's what, what I have a heading on in uh, my books that uh, I keep track of on the Paranormal News Insider website, paranewsinsider.com. I've got a, a books section that uh, sorely needs updated. I'm just browsing this and I'm seeing some books that are missing. I don't know why I don't have those on there. I haven't been updated in a while. So we haven't had a book of the week in a while. It's a while since, looks like, I guess, July. But we do talk about books here and, and this story is uh, no different. So yes, regional ghost stories. Seems like it's probably the most published anymore of uh, ghost books. And of course the other side is books on how to investigate ghosts. It seems like everybody's got their own opinion. And uh, unfortunately that's how a lot of these books are written. They're written by opinion. And of course that leads things to a lot of different directions. And uh, this book in particular is called Elements of a Haunting, Connecting History with Science to Uncover the Greatest Ghost Stories Ever Told. And this book is uh, authored by Brandon Alvis and Mustafa Gadalari. And you may recognize those names. Brandon and Mustafa, yes. They're from that TV show. They used to be minor characters. Uh, but now they, uh, during the 
latest Ghost Hunters. I shouldn't even say the latest Ghost Hunters reboot. The last one of the last reboots uh, between 2019 and 2020. They were uh, kind of the main characters on that show. Uh, that's when Grant Wilson came back, and that A and E television series from 2019 to 2020 had 21 episodes. It was a full season that they appeared on that. And uh, the two of them apparently wrote a book. And a lot of it was dealing, uh, I think from what I'm reading, is dealing with that season as well as other years that they were involved uh, with uh, ghost hunters or ghost hunting in general. A lot of this looks like it's tied to the television shows. Uh, This book came out on January 8th of this year, and it boasts uh, 264 pages and displays plenty of positive reviews on the Amazon page that sells it. I mean, looking at these great reviews, my goodness, looks like the kind of book I want to buy. Uh, however, well, there are a few other people who have uh, kind of commented uh, otherwise on it, as well as this uh, article that I stumbled across. That uh, also talks about this book, but uh, in not so positive light, uh, it's kind of dismantled. I guess that's uh, probably the best way to describe how this book was treated. And uh, this review uh, was conducted by the hosts of the podcast Three Tortured Souls. And the Three Tortured Souls are Dave Schumacher, Kenny Biddle, and Tim Vickers. And I've uh, I've met Kenny Biddle a few times. I've talked to Dave Schumacher, um, and I could tell you these guys, uh, all three of them, from what I'm reading, a little bit more on the skeptical side. Which uh, I think we all should be a little bit more on the skeptical side, make things a little bit easier. Uh, but they also come from a background in ghost investigation. Uh, I know that uh, Dave Schumacher wrote a how-to type ghost book and you know i've done the same thing i've written actually written four of those Uh, so i'm i've contributed to that um and like i said they uh, in this article they dismantled this book they didn't really have to try too hard uh you've got to be very careful like i said i've written four books on uh, ghost investigation out of my six and i've always been very careful of any claims that I've made in the book. I try not to make any types of claims. Uh, I try to keep my opinions out of it unless I'm strictly saying this is my opinion, this is how I think, or this is how I feel. Uh, because people will take take things out of context if you if you do, if you kind of interject opinion that comes across as fact. And especially when you're uh, a television celebrity – People will take you uh, a little bit differently than they would uh, if you're just Joe Ghost Hunter who's been uh, stalking the woods in some uh, state, in some city that you never heard of before. Um, But yeah, if you're on TV, obviously you're a major influence on people. Uh, People will look up to you. People will model your behavior, which is uh, unfortunately the problem with these television shows. It's created a culture of of followers and really and truly um you know it's good on one hand 
the TV shows have brought people into the field because it's uh, it's brought people that may have never ventured into the the ghost world, and it's actually created it uh, for all of us to be viewed as rock stars. I can honestly tell you, when I first started investigating ghosts, I didn't tell anybody. Uh, I lived with a girl for a, a few years. She, she had no idea I was doing the stuff on the side. I don't know what she was thinking I was doing, but, you know, I hid it from everybody. Because it was, uh, you know, if people knew you were chasing ghosts at night, they would probably think you're pretty weird. and You'd probably be better off doing uh, other things. Probably get away with that versus uh, saying that you're stomping on cemetery grounds late in the evening or other places. But, uh, yeah, the TV shows have made it mainstream, made us all cool. We all have leather jackets and black shirts, slick black, you know, backed hair and, and uh, appearing on podcasts and radio shows and uh, libraries and big events all over the place. Yeah, we're all rock stars now. Uh, when we do this stuff. And of course, if you write a book, then you're relevant. You're definitely going to get on these shows. You're definitely going to get speaking appearances. Uh, so, of course, a lot of these people uh, are attracted to the field because of the TV shows and, of course, get their education from that as well. So then you have these same people writing more books on how to become an investigator. And all this stuff goes from opinion to perceived fact because it's repeated so many times over and over and over and over again. And I think some of the stuff that you're seeing in this book uh, is a result of that culture, of this uh, carbon copy culture that we get in the ghost field. And I mean, if you think about it, um, there's so many ghost books. You, unfortunately, you don't see much when you go, I don't know. Do people still go to libraries? I mean, to uh, bookstores? Are there still bookstores? I don't know. Uh, I've been to a few. I got excited. I was out. Um, forget where I was at. Oh, was that a convention? The unconventional convention uh, years ago. I was out at this mall, and they had a bookstore, and I was excited because uh, they didn't have one. They didn't have my book per se, but they had, uh, I was in two different books uh, that I found on uh, Ghost Investigation, but uh, it's hard to find these books in libraries anymore. It seems like it's all psychic stuff or witch books, you know, witches, witch books. And you don't see that much in the way of ghost books anymore in bookstores, or I should say libraries or bookstores. But uh, they're out there. You know, uh, Amazon's full of them. And I actually have a couple of catalogs from uh, book publishers that the one company, they actually all they do is regional books. And I think there's 67 just that this one company has published. Uh, I think every state has at least one. I've got literally, uh, I think, 12 on my bookshelf just from Ohio. I've got four from Florida couple from West Virginia. Uh, I got a bunch from the Northeast. I, I just, everybody's got them. Every state has a few. And, you know, like I said, I've, I've done the same thing. I'm just as guilty. I've written books on the subject, amateur investigation. Um, 
I guess the my last ghost book, which is called the E4 Method, Breaking the Mold of Paranormal Investigation. Uh, I created my own blend of approach toward client-based claims of ghosts uh, because of the uh, standard method that's used is just really horrible. And I think a lot of people will agree with that. The standard three-prong approach, what I call, where there is a uh, kind of a an, an effort to interview, which is usually just where do things happen so where I can set up my stuff. Uh, then there's an investigation. And of course, the last part is the reveal, which is just where you give your opinion on what you think based on your information that you've collected. And this is just severely flawed. You know, no, no scientist would ever put themselves in the middle of an investigation because you're, you're, it's all subjective. There's, there's no objectivity at all in any ghost investigation. Um, so my book, the E4 method, I, I'd never claimed it to be scientific, never claimed that it was, um, you know, using scientific methods, although it does use, uh, science efforts. There are things in there that are a little bit more inclined, uh, objectivity versus subjectivity, uh, using other people, the client, for that matter, involved in the investigation other than yourself. So the investigators are actually observers versus people involved. Uh, I tried different things, and I know it wasn't perfect, and I know that uh, some people um, made some uh, in inquiries about whether or not it would work or things that they didn't think made sense. And that's fine because that's what I wrote it for. I just wrote it to be a step away from where we're, you know, where everyone is is doing because everything that uh, we see is pretty flawed. And uh, this book, unfortunately, you would think that over time, people would be learning from each other and we would be getting uh, closer and closer to discovering the answer. Are ghosts real? And how do we how do we interact with them, and how can we uh, validate to the world that these things are real? We all believe in it. Anybody who's ever been in one of these locations, who've heard things, felt things, smelled things, we all believe in it to some certain extent. Unfortunately, all the times that we think, or other people think, that ghosts are around, uh, generally. It's a very small percentage of time. It's not as much as what we think. And uh, we get a little carried away, I think, with it. Um, but again, with my book, I steered very clear of calling it any sort of science-based effort, although I did blend uh, some like professional interviewing techniques that is used by the FBI. Uh, I also used... Uh, Psychical research methodologies, uh, parapsychology in it, and uh, a lot of different blends of things. But again, uh, I was very careful the way I put it together. Very careful. You know, I did involve other people involved in ghost research. Actually, somebody who worked um, at a parapsychology lab, the Ryden Research Center, uh, to validate, you know, what I was saying or look at the book to make sure that I wasn't doing anything that was uh, stupid. But back to this book, The Elements of the Haunting, 
and it's even in the title, Elements of a Haunting Connecting History with Science to Uncover the Greatest Ghost Stories Ever Told. And I'd heard about this book, and I hadn't heard anything about it, just heard it was coming out. And I saw that title, and I kind of wondered about it. And I read a first review a couple of weeks ago. And again, it was all shining. It was all perfect. It was like five stars out of four stars. It was like, this is an awesome book. And the uh, the book promises to, uh, here reading the article, says to uh, provides a, quote, groundbreaking classification system for ghosts uh, that is transforming the field of paranormal studies into a true scientific discipline. And I thought, wait, what? How is that possible? And uh, what could what information can they possibly have that's never been told before? And how are you going to change a pseudoscientific field? I mean, let's face it. You know, there's very, very little science. And these machines, these tools, uh, these REM pods and these uh, random word generators and uh, all these little fancy gadgets that we bring with us, that's not science. Those are just tools. It's just technology. Technology and tools do not equal science. It's, it's the method in which you use them that is science. Science is, is not an event. It's not a, a three-hour vigil. Science is a process. It's how you approach things. It's how you collect data. It's how you separate yourself from the, the uh, investigation there's, there's a lot more to it than just saying, I'm going to prove it. Ghosts are here, and this little blinky light that lights up is going to prove it to everybody. Because that's not how it works. Um, but uh, this book here, again, uh, Three Tortured Souls. So we have Kenny Biddle, Dave Schumacher, and Tim Vickers. And they each kind of take a stab at various parts of this book, uh, talking about different uh pieces and parts of it um and dave schumacher is uh he's got a master's degree in molecular biology and his take on this and i'm going to read this from the article he says quote uh, empirical evidence is gathered from experience observation and experimentation which can include both quantitative and qualitative methods while there is no shortage of their personal experiences and the observations shared in this book based on past episodes of the TV show they were both on, there is no detailed information on the quantitative or qualitative methods and data they collected. For example, there are numerous times that the correlation between subjective paranormal experiences and changes in barometric pressure on the EDI data logger are mentioned. However, there was no actual data presented on how many times it happens, nor is there any formal statistical analysis presented. There are a few experiments mentioned, but no details or explanation of the methods, data, or analysis. Therefore, they fall far short of their empirical evidence goal. Um, yeah, you've got to be careful. If you're going to make a claim, you got to have the data to back up the claim. You can't just say... Well, I proved this, and I proved it because I did something that I believe in. That's not how science works. And unfortunately, that further digs us in that hole of pseudoscience. Um, 
And let's see, Tim Vickers, he's got uh, another good point here. He's uh, been a forensic interviewer for 20 years. He's got a bachelor's in psychology. And talking about um, the, uh, the introduction where it says, Mustafa and I will lay the foundation for a scientific approach to paranormal investigation. That enough would get me excited. I'd want to find out about that. How do you, how do you use a scientific approach? I've never seen that on any episode of Ghost Hunters. It's usually just a bunch of dudes who uh, get these spine-tingling stories, turn off the lights, and then run around screaming. Flashing the flashlights at each other, going, dude, 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 shh, shh. Did you see that? Did you hear that? What was that? What was that? What was that? It's all you hear. It's all it is is an hour of that. And a little bit of history. I'll tune in for the history, then I'll turn it off. Go watch something else. But uh, uh, Vickers uh, says in this article, he says, quote, I was ready to learn. I came to Chapter 2, Ghost Science, and found it was 10 pages long. Again, remember, 264 pages, but only 10 pages long. Uh, Chapter 3, Ethics, Protocols, and Standards. Is 12 pages long. Chapter 4, Technology and the Paranormal, is a mere 12 pages long, coming to a grand total of 34 pages out of that 264. He says 247. Maybe that's without the the, uh, last little bits and pieces there at the end. Uh, The chapters that follow tell stories of ghost hunting, loosely integrated, and often missing the science previously mentioned in their book. The opportunity to teach and reference previous science-based work in the paranormal was also missed, in my opinion. And what about the groundbreaking classification system for ghosts and hunt, uh, ghosts and hauntings? Well, I'd love to hear about that. I mean, all I know is uh, what psychical researchers uncovered you know, 120 years ago. Uh, what parapsychologists patchworked together in the 1930s and 1940s, which lays the foundation for what we know today. But of course, you know, this last uh, 20 years on TV shows, they've totally rewritten everything, right? They've done more work than all those scientific people way back when, wearing those wool suits, running around actually um, interviewing people and figuring out their trickery. But, you know, what do they know? Um, so let's see. They, uh, they show five classes. So the five classes are haunting apparitions, helping entities, restless spirits, malevolent entities, and pseudo-hauntings. Which is... Uh, hmm. Uh, the five classes, along with 13 subclasses, all borrow, sometimes word for word, from previously published works, but are presented as something the authors developed themselves. Shame on you. And again, you've got to be careful. And again, I'm reading from the article. Don't want to get in trouble. But you've got to be careful where you, when you take information from other people, you have to cite it as a source. Now, granted, a lot of the ghost investigation stuff, here's the problem is a common knowledge. We all share this information. We all talk about it. It's on websites, it's on all these shows. Uh, but when you're going to document it in a book, and if you're going to claim to come up with something yourself, you got to know where things came from. So again, I, I mentioned my book, 
of the E4 method. I took a lot of that stuff from other people who I noted throughout the book. Um, even people who are no longer alive still reference their work because it's their work. They're the ones that came up with it. They're the ones that, uh, that did it. They're the ones that published it. You know, even people who are still alive, John Sable, uh, the ghost excavator took some pieces and parts of his methodologies as well. And, uh, Gave him credit for that, where I took, you know, utilized his work as well. So anytime you, you take anything, you got to give credit. You can't just throw a couple of words together and uh, come up with your own ideas. Um, and the article here says, Dave points out, pages 31 to 33 provide references to where the various classes of the system have been derived from other people and works. There is nothing novel about it. Additionally, it is not based on any formal analysis uh, that would be needed for a true contribution to the scientific knowledge base. So basically, they just kind of just sat around and brainstormed and just put things together a different way. There's, there's no – to me, that's not groundbreaking uh, to just reformulate what's already been done by dozens of other people and just kind of make your own opinion about it. Uh, if you've not done any kind of work to validate the reason for changing it to that uh, method. And uh, there's a, man, there's a lot of stuff here. Uh, there's, uh, I also talk about the law of conservation of energy and the first law of thermo thermodynamics. Which I, I can't stand that. Uh, when I hear people talk about the first law of thermodynamics, I, I will stop listening. I will burn that book. I'm not going to listen to it because people really severely misunderstand scientific processes and, and different things. And they grasp at these concepts and say, well, this means that. So therefore ghosts exist. Now, but in reality, if you know anything about the laws of thermodynamics and the, you can't just have the first law without the second law, um, the first law people will, you know, they quote, well, energy can't be created nor destroyed. Well, right. But the second law also states that energy goes from useful forms to less useful forms. Uh, so you're not going to go from a uh, walking meat sack that uh, depends on food, oxygen, sunlight to survive to some free-floating entity that needs nothing to survive. That's a higher plane of existence. That's just not how science works. And uh, there's also another thing here. They, their integrity gets called out. Uh, they made a uh, – said they quoted something here. And unfortunately, when you look up the, uh, the, the work actually from where they say they got it from, there is no mention of the actual quote itself in, in a, uh, a section called Ethics, uh, which – so they, they quoted this, uh, all this information about these years, 1842, uh, Julius Robert Mayer discovered the law of, of conservation of energy in its most compact form, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they give a citation number, which uh, if you look up the website address where they say they got that information from, uh, the dates, 1842, as well as another date, 1907, uh, Julius Robert Mayer. And conservation of energy, they don't appear at all. 
So they've uh, created a non-existent quote. So if you're quoting something, you're citing something, you're taking information from one source and using it on yours. That's why you're citing it. But the, the quote never existed. And they put it in a section called ethics. That's a red flag. That's not good. So I think all in all, a lot of other information here. Uh, one would think that uh, Kenny Biddle, Dave Schumacher, and Tim Vickers uh, do not support this book, <laughs> Elements of a Haunting, Connecting History with Science to Uncover the Greatest Stories Ever Told, and nor do I endorse it. It's not going to be on my list of books. I, I don't think we need another book like that that questions, uh, that makes us question. Kenny uh, gave it a one out of five on Amazon. It's harsh, Kenny, but uh, probably well-deserved for that type of book. If you're interested in good books on the topic of ghost investigation, uh, there's a few out there. Investigating Ghosts, The Scientific Search for Spirits by Ben Radford. That's a great place to start. Um, he's skeptical, but he's uh, down the middle. Like if uh, you're going to prove something, he's going to teach you a little bit about science. If you want to use science... Ben Radford's the guy. You've also got, uh, see, Joe Nichols' The Science of Ghosts, Searching for the Spirits of Dead of the Dead. It's another good book. Uh, if you want to step a little bit uh, more into the believer side, uh, pick up an, a Lloyd Auerbach book, ESP Hauntings and Poltergeists, uh, Parapsychologist's Handbook. One of the first books that uh, I read cover to cover to cover to cover to cover to cover. I've read it three times in like literally two months. Still my favorite book on the topic. Uh, he's gone to uh, break that book down into a, a lot of other books that he's published over the years, shorter versions of different chapters. Uh, check those books out. Uh, seen somebody on TV. They probably didn't write too well of a book on the topic, although I, I did enjoy. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, Grant Wilson and uh, both of those guys, they wrote a book. I mean, it was decent. Jason Hawes, Grant Wilson. Um, it was mostly their true stories of investigating. But anyway, uh, check out that list on the website, paranewsinsider.com. You click on the tab at the top that says books. You can also check out events near you on the events tab at the top as well. And enjoy. And if you have any information about paranormal conferences or conventions that I didn't list on there, or even a book maybe that I have that uh, I've not put on there yet, which I probably already read, uh, but I haven't put it on there. Uh, let me know. You can email me at insider at paranewsinsider.com or find me on Twitter at paranewsinsider. And with that, I'll bid you adieu. I will see you next week, but for now, keep your eyes in the skies, your ears in the woods, the hair standing on the back of your neck, and always keep your mind slightly ajar and above all else don't stop believing for the paranormal news insider this is dr brian d parsons reporting